welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I'm David Bax. And thank you for listening. David. Yeah. How you doing? Oh, good. Good. Oh, all right. I'm, I'm finally, I've, it's been a busy time for me, but the LA Film Fest is over. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, for scheduling reasons, we won't be doing our official, like, full wrap-up episode yeah. for a couple weeks. We're going to have a guest on, I guess, we're going to have Kyle Anderson on uh, mm-hmm. to talk about LA Film Fest, but I saw a bunch of great stuff. Not as many things as last year. For a number of reasons, the festival was shorter this year. That was part of the reason. Yeah, it's, it seems like I thought it was still going on, but it seems like um, uh, I think technically it ends tonight. Okay, um, I think tonight is the closing night. But mm-hmm. uh, I'm that sounded very ominous. It ends tonight. <laughs> yeah, technically it okay. ends tonight. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you do you do what I do? Probably. I mean, we probably not. Are you talking about battleship retention? If so, yes. Yeah. The answer is yes. Um, in the morning, sometimes I, I'm, a, I'm the kind of person who takes a while to wake up fully. Mm-hmm. So sometimes my voice will be a little different in the morning. Oh yeah. Um, when I sometimes when I drive to work, sometimes pretty much all the time when I drive to work, when I pass Bill Ward's for movies, I say the taglines in like the trailer guy voice because at that time of the day, at like eight eight thirty in the morning, my voice is in prime. Like if I could somehow stay there all day, I'm I might could have a career. Okay. I don't really say might could. Yeah, so. I know. Uh, you reckon you could have a career. <laughs> yeah. You reckon you might could have a career. Um, uh, no, I don't do that for really? a number of reasons. First off, I don't wake up in the morning. Secondly, <laughs> uh, I don't drive to work. Uh, I walk to my office, and um, which is in my house. And what I will do, and also my voice tends not to be that different in the morning, but if I'm sick, a particular kind of sick, and oh, my sure. voice is much deeper... Uh, I do a middling Jeremy Irons. I do a pr- I do a pretty good Jeremy Irons, depending on the day. But in, on those days, I sound like I'm a little bit already. Uh-huh. And then when I and then when I change it, and when I change my voice just a little bit, I'm like, oh, oh, this is the best thing. Uh, and uh, and so my, yeah, I do it a little bit then. My favorite thing when I'm sick and my fiance and I are watching HBO when mm-hmm. HBO show starts, I do the. And now, the HBO original series, Silicon Valley. But it sounds great. <laughs> and I think, like, this is going to knock her fucking socks off. Yeah. <laughs> she, she just thinks it's a stupid thing that I'm doing. But I really think I'm going to impress her by sounding like the HBO guy. Jen has only ever been impressed by one of my quote-unquote impressions, and that is my Mickey Mouse, which is one line, and it's pretty good. Yeah. And I think I've done it for the listeners before, but I'll do it now because it's fun. Uh <laughs> that's pretty good it's not bad um here's you know, a, i could tell you the one time that um my fiance was impressed and i won't be able to do it, it was one of those things that happens the one time thing yeah that i just was in conversation with her telling her a story and i just started it was just about mark Wahlberg, and i just started doing mark Wahlberg. Mm-hmm. And she was like she did, didn't even like she stopped listening to what the story was and she was like wow that was really good yeah and i was like yeah and it's gone I'll oh never of course do it again. absolutely no question about it um yeah, uh, here's an interesting thing. So, uh, on more than one lesson, uh, I recently interviewed an old friend of mine from Denver. Actually, he was more of a friend of my brother's from Denver, um, who uh, is an actor and also does voiceover. But he also does voice matching. So he actually had to match. He had to do. I don't know if it was all of Hayden Christensen's ADR because scheduling it didn't work out. Uh-huh. But he had to go in and basically just be Hayden Christensen. So then he did a little bit. 
Uh, it's called American Heist. It's coming up with it's with him and um, Adrian Brody, and so uh, so yeah. Then he did a little bit of Hayden Christensen, and it's like, whoa, what was that? I don't immediately think of him as like <laughs> yeah. he's not Jack Nicholson or something like right. that. But then the minute he did it, I thought that is astounding. How can you? Did he talk about how he doesn't like sand? <laughs> um, and it's Christensen, right? Oh, I don't know. I, I guess I guess that's true. Yeah, Christensen, Hayden Christensen, right? Oh, jeez, that's gonna bother me because I've been saying Christensen for twelve years. Do you ever have like? There's, there's a woman I work with. Her name is Tara. Everyone mm-hmm. knows her name is Tara. Mm-hmm. That's what everyone calls her, yeah. except for one of my coworkers who calls her Tara. Mm. Everyone he hears everyone, yeah, all day every day, say Tara. And yet he still says Tara, says Tara, and I'm wondering if he's doing it on purpose, and if he is, bravo. <laughs> oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. Maybe that's uh, maybe he subscribes to the Jim Bruce "How to Be a Dick" kind of oh, thing, yeah, and yeah. just say, you be the one guy that says it wrong, but not t- not totally wrong. Yeah. Spelling it works out. Um, yeah, when well, I was younger, I, I I would say my brother and I said Magneto instead uh-huh. of Magneto because. It sounds better. Well, well, and there were there were no car- there were no cartoons. There was no there was only yeah. It was only on the page, and so an argument could be made either way. And then when they started saying Magneto uh, on the cartoon and in the movies, I thought, okay, I guess that's what it is. Uh, but I held on to Magneto longer than you would think. I think I remember in high school. Pro- oh, probably yeah. Yeah, and uh, Not that partially we went to high school together. For people who don't know our backstory, we met when we were both in high school yes but we did not go to high school together indeed and uh and so because my whole thing was like first off magneto admittedly magneto is just magnet with o at the end but magneto has the word neato in it right, which, which sounds not, silly not intimidating <laughs> yeah, that's true um i don't care how often he rips the adamantium out of uh wolverine's body it still isn't that scary sounding if there were no harry potter movies and you read the book would you know how to say Herm- uh, hermione I would never. It'd be like hmm. Hermione or something. Hermione. Uh, you know what? I'd probably arrive at that. Yes. Yeah. Um, but I, as far as the the being a dick thing, I am sticking with pretending I don't know how to say Downton Abbey and calling it Downtown Abbey because <laughs> it was funny at first, and now I feel like it's hacky, and I'm gonna. I am committed. I'm going to stick with it until it's funny again. You're going to bring I'm, it back. I'm. Cons- I'm not going to bring it back. I'm just going to be the guy who was always there. Okay. Fair you enough. Know? Yeah. Uh, that's my plan is to still keep saying downtown Abbey uh, until somehow it's funny again to someone besides myself. Right now it's only funny to me. I forget who it was. Uh, I, along with uh, a number of people, uh, when I first started seeing billboards for game of Thrones, it, it first looked like game of thorns. Yeah. Like initially as you were driving, like, and you saw the billboards, that's what it looked like. And, some people said, oh, it's, oh, okay, it's Thrones. I got it. Um, but I think it would be funny to just call it Game of Thrones just yeah. f- throughout, just forever. Yeah. And you love it. You watch the show. You love it. <laughs> you go, oh, did you see the latest Game of Thrones? Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That sounds wonderful well, you know, to me. Uh, one of my uh, heroes, uh, Tom Sharpling, he used mm-hmm. to do the best show on WFMU. He used to do that all the time. Yeah. Referred to, uh, he'd have, like guests on to talk about them being in the hangover movies and he'd call them the handover <laughs> uh wedding crunchers instead of wedding crunchers Watchman instead of Watchmen. <laughs> I, I love that stuff it's good I, stuff so i might be taking a page out of his out of his book 
It's it's funny. Mispronunciation you know, Talon is Barrow's funny. Genius steals, right? Uh, yeah, sure. I stole that from someone. Oh, okay. I'm a genius. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay, uh, you had something you wanted to talk about at the top of the show. Well, first, th- I'll tell you, there are two things I want to talk about. The first thing is we that We only this- have time for one, I'm sorry. Okay, well, it's going to have to be this one because they paid us. Uh, this episode is brought to you by the Double Feature Podcast. This week, contrasting the films Wrong, which you've yeah, seen, I believe. I saw it. And Upstream Color, which both of us saw. I saw that one, too. In this discussion, our hosts talk about fitting the bizarre into a neat little box, films that you need a flowchart to follow, and intentionally crafting uh, rewards for repeat viewings, and much, much more. You can listen to this episode by going to doublefeatureshow.com or clicking on the banner ad at battleshippretension.com. Once again, these conversations sound really great. Yeah. That, especially the idea of fitting the bizarre into a neat box. Uh because I feel like that's that's something that bothers me when, especially when it comes to mainstream film. That's one of my big problems with uh, Inception is that we're dealing with a dream state. It should be surreal and strange with the circumstances changing all the time, and it wound up being a shockingly understandable and accessible film. Yeah, well, it was only understandable because they kept explaining it. To <laughs> yeah, you, exactly. The whole movie. Yeah, you know um, the way nobody ever does in a dream. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, if these, if the double feature people already, the, by the way, they already have my respect, but if they sat through wrong more than once, yeah, you know, I remember you weren't viewings there. I remember you weren't a big fan of it. Not a very good movie. Upstream color is great though. Yeah, absolutely. So it might've been, I don't, I don't remember what my number one film of last year was. It could have been upstream color. Uh, it was, um, the great beauty, the great beauty. Yeah, that yes. was a good one. Uh, it's odd that you... <laughs> I always forget. Yeah, it's all right. Um, okay, and speaking of favorites and such, yeah. here's a thing that I started to do okay. for reasons uh, that I don't remember, um, even though it was only a few days ago. Um, 12 years ago, 12 years ago, maybe even longer, uh, when you and I were living together and I didn't really have any other friends, I just started making lists of everything. And you've never stopped. And I have not stopped. <laughs> but here, I, will, I would allow a long, um, like a long um, passage of time between revisiting certain lists. Now, my top 100 movies, I would do that every three years. But, um, but years ago, I made my top 100 favorite performance, leading performances by a man and then by a woman. And then I did supporting and supporting. Uh, here, and uh, also on more than one lesson, uh, we recently recorded an episode about the Apostle, which is not uh, posted yet. Okay, but um, Robert Duvall and the Apostle, twelve years ago, that was my favorite leading performance by a man. And so I thought, I wonder if it's still there. So I just went about going through each of my top hundreds going through uh, the nominees for supporting actor, going through my top tens year by year, going through the independent, the independent spirit award nominees, going through the BAFTAs and really trying to get as in depth uh, a list as I could, a a very long, a long list. And then uh, slowly but surely whittling it down. And I made a top hundred. When are you going to watch Buffy the Vampire Slayer? Hmm? (laughs) When are you going to get around to finding the time to watch? When I perfect these lists, <laughs> I'm almost there. Um, also, you know, I I haven't seen True Detective. I got to catch up on Mad Men. 
there's probably some other ones in there. Yeah, those, those are both really good. Um, yeah, for some reason, I really felt the need to watch True Detective recently. I'm not sure why. Um, oh, right, because uh, for some reason, I got uh, I, I went down the Wikipedia hole uh, about H.P. Uh, Lovecraft. Ah. So, um, and uh, there's a lot of uh, Lovecraftian uh, reference in right. uh, True Detective, apparently. But Lovecraft so. himself, racist, right? Uh, I don't know. If I had to guess, I'd say, yeah, probably. Okay. Um, you know, it's from a different era. I think everybody was probably a little bit racist <laughs> then, right? Um, As opposed to now? Really? Watch out. Yeah, kind of. I think so. Probably, right? Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm Googling Lovecraft racist. <laughs> um, oh, boy. Okay. Um, I'm not going to make that joke. Anyway. So anyway, so as, as I was going through uh, these lists, I made my I did, rather than make a top hundred, which I did for actor and then realized I can't do this for all four categories. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to stick to top tens. Which, oh, which that's a good idea. Yeah. And so I have here my top 10 actress and actor leading both. Um, and I've posted them on more than one lesson, but, uh, but here's the thing that I, that I realized. And, and I, I told you beforehand, um, I feel like there's a whole episode in this and it's the idea of, for lack of a better word, tokenism. Okay. In my now in my top hundred actors, there are plenty of you know uh, foreign performances, uh, like you know Asian actors, African American uh, actors, that sort of thing. In my top ten, none. Well, it, there there are some foreign performances, but uh, but like African American, none. And part of me is like, oh, instinctively, I feel like that's wrong. But at the same time, it's like, well, these are just. I'm not saying I don't that I'm not I wasn't incredibly affected by Denzel Washington and Malcolm X or Training Day or Flight. I'm not a huge Sidney Poitier fan, but I love Forrest Whitaker. Uh, Will Smith in I Am Legend made the cut. Yeah, uh, I think his best performance, which is saying something. He's a good actor. He's a good actor. Um, you know, and so I didn't go out of my way to exclude. It's just the performances that resonated with me. But then I thought, well, maybe they're are they resonating me? with me because these are all white characters and I'm a white person and I'm a, and I'm a white man or whatever. And so I just thought, Oh, maybe I should, maybe I should cheat a little bit and, and put like Denzel Washington in training day. Cause I do love that performance. Maybe right. I should, maybe I should do that. It's like, and so I thought, but then that's then being, said, wait, that's not a lead performance. Ugh, a well, lead there role. is that, <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's, no, but it's, think, but it's saying, lead ish. Um, but you're saying, is it because of that, or is it because, you know, uh, the representation just isn't isn't there. It's yeah, weird to bring this up because I was just thinking about it because I talked the second week in a row we're going to mention our um, uh, devout uh, listener, Darren, who's doing a year of BP.tumblr.com. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was doing uh, – recently wrote about our um, characters, listener-generated list of characters, yeah. and he posted the top ten, only two of which are female. Yeah. Uh, Ellen Ripley and um, uh, Gloria Swanson, right? Norma, Norma Desmond. Norma Desmond. Yeah. yeah, right. Gloria Swanson is – the actress. The actress. Yes. Okay. Um, and uh, I had the same thought. Like, is it, uh, you know, is it because we have, and we know we, we do have more male listeners than female. Or at yeah. least we did, what, three years ago when we did that survey? Yeah. Um, I, I, it's probably evened out by now. Yeah, no question uh, about it. Um, uh, yeah, but um, that, that, uh, that boost we got from Jezebel really helped. <laughs> Wait, did Jezebel? No. Oh, I love Jezebel. Um <laughs> Anyway, uh, and I, but yeah, is it because our listeners are male, or is it because there just aren't as many 
compelling female representations. I'm inclined to say it's probably... Here's the thing, is there's probably sexism in there somewhere, but I'm much more willing, as always, I'm much more willing to blame studios than almost anybody else. (laughs) Um, And... And that's and so, but, but in this case, just, it starts. That's that's we're we're drawing this dichotomy. Like, oh, is it us? It's, or is it us, the viewers, or is it the 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 studios? It's all of it. Yeah, yeah. It all is tied together. That we're all racist and sexist. Um, and I uh, saw a Crash. I get it. <laughs> yeah, uh, and yeah. And not only are we all racist and sexist, it's a bad thing. That's what we learned from Crash. Yeah, yeah. That was yeah. big. Try uh, to avoid it if you can. Yeah, Crash really cracked that nut open. <laughs> Try to steer away from it. <laughs> um, but yeah, there are, you know, there uh, we're at the very least complicit in it mm-hmm. in, in a lot of ways. Um, and we also, you know, we, we, we're, we, you and I like to blame the executives saying, just saying like, oh no, you know, women, uh, movies geared toward women won't, won't sell as many tickets right even though there's no real proof of that there's proof of the opposite yeah yeah and every year i'm the billionth person to say this but every year everyone's surprised when a female-driven movie makes yeah. a ton of money anyway. at some point you'd think people get used to the idea of that <laughs> yeah but um, yeah but also you know there uh the tokenism probably started in the screenplay stage uh, in a yeah. lot of these cases so even the the artists that we uh hold, which is why you know bring it back to lovecraft you can love his craft Whoa. you can love his uh, his work um but uh he was still a racist and well that, and here's uh, so now we're into the topic of separating the art from the artist which is a different BP, yeah. bp favorite yeah um and an MTL favorite, actually. When we did that one, a lot of people responded to that. Um, but here's my question now. We can talk about the system, but now now we're talking... So let's bring it to personal responsibility of you and I as, as uh, film critics. You can put aspiring on there if you want. Um, I always have a hard time just coming out and saying it. And then Jen says, just say you're a film critic. It's fine. You've been doing this for years. You've spent <laughs> a lot of money on it uh, one way or another. Um, and so so now the question is, I've made a list of my 10 favorite performances. Not necessarily what I think is best. That's another conversation. But like, my, Is this still you know, um, separated by gender? It is at the moment. So yes. 10 of each. 10 of each. Okay. Yeah. And at the moment, I'm thinking in terms of, of uh, if they're separated by gender, then I'm thinking in terms of race. Um, should I, in the spirit of wanting to champion uh, that, like, hey, there's plenty of, there, there's great performances by African-American actors and actresses out there and Asian actors and actors, that kind of thing. Um, should I artificially force one in to my top one or two into my top ten that I don't actually think that aren't actually my favorite. Should I do, should I compromise what I would venture to say is my integrity right? in order to do what I think is a, a good thing. And you're putting it out there in the public. It's a public service. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's pros and cons. I wouldn't, but I can see yeah. a good argument for doing it. Yeah, me too. And it's, you don't have one. Do you think I should feel guilty? Let me no. ask you that. No, not at all. Okay. Um, but you know what I've wanted to do? You do, I think, and uh, maybe other contributors on the website have done, like, the fantasy casting thing. Lots of fun. Um, like, and you've done it for remakes, or you've done it for, like, 
more recent movies if they were made in the 50s or 60s or whatever. Even more fun? Um, my twist on it that I've always wanted to do is to recast a movie, but the trick is no one can be the same race or gender that they were in the original. Race or gender. Race or gender. So most movies... Not race about, and gender. Right. Uh, yeah. So this character, is, this, this white man is either going to be a black man or a white woman or a black woman. Um, no, he can't be a black man. If it's a white man in the original, it has to be a black woman or a Latino woman or an Asian woman oh, or wow. something like that. All right. Um, I, w- I really want to do that. Uh, and I think, uh, I think listeners should submit those. I don't know if we're going to go to the trouble of doing the Google image searches and everything. Yeah. But, uh, I think that's a fun experiment to see, um, uh, to, to sort of illustrate, um, to, to color in, if you will, mm-hmm. how, uh, colorless, our movies are and however i don't and gender but i couldn't find a good like pun punny way to talk about gender although i will i do again i do think that that's not a thing that you can just do blindly it's a thing that in theory should work but the fact is and i'm not saying that like i'm not talking about difference between races i'm talking about difference between cultures like one culture can't immediately would be word for word the same right well yeah no the the premise would be the same and you'd have to change some things let me ask you a question i feel bad i feel like i'm sexist for asking this have you seen the female odd couple have i seen i've read the female odd couple i've never seen it i've seen it (laughs) i feel like you're having read it yeah that's (laughs) good for you um and uh it doesn't seem as good to me. It, it fe- everything about it feels like what I'm talking about, which was trying to cater to a, a different audience. And he made some changes. Uh, Neil Simon made some changes, and good for him. But by having the character types be having the character types be exactly the same, and I'm not saying there are no sl- slobbish women out there or yeah. anything like that. But just it felt false to me. Yeah, I'm, that's what I'm saying. My my thing is just an experiment. I'm not saying that if that you could turn Michael Clayton into Michelle Chung and have it be <laughs> just as good a movie. It would just be interesting to look at. Oh, Michelle, I want to see this now. <laughs> um, but uh, incidentally, I'm super excited to see that, uh, that, oh, I forget what country it is. Um, the remake of Unforgiven, like the, like the sort of uh, samurai remake of Unforgiven. Oh, okay. I don't think I, is it a samurai remake or is it literally just like a Western transplanted? I don't remember. I, I, I know a little about it, but uh, but I've heard good things about it. Would you be at all interested in hearing uh, what my top ten my my tops ten are, or uh, would you? Did you say your tops ten? Yeah, that's a joke. <laughs> that's a joke I like to make these days. <laughs> well, now I really want to. Okay, do yeah. that's my that's my version of you mispronouncing things. <laughs> I love it. Um, all right, here we go. You want to hear uh, female or male first? Let's go with male first. Okay. Ten to one. Obviously. All right, Count ten to one. Number ten, Emil Yawning's The Last Laugh. This is performance. Performance, okay. yes. Not, I mean, of course, these are also great characters, right. but it's specifically performance. Okay. Uh, number nine, Daniel Day-Lewis, There Will Be Blood. Okay. Number eight, Maximilian Schell, The Man in the Glass Booth. Okay. Wait, can I say another thing? We're talking about dumb things you like to say. Sure. I say, uh, I'm legend instead of I am legend, and I say, <laughs> there will be blood instead of there will be blood, and no one ever notices. <laughs> Yeah, that that that's a pretty subtle one. Um, it, but it's only for me. I'm doing it. For oh, there's no question about it. You're doing it just for you. <laughs> number seven. Uh, number seven, Philip Baker Hall in Secret Honor. Okay. Never saw it. Number six, George C. Scott in The Hospital. Ah, number f- good. I don't know that I love that movie, though. 
I have some problems with that movie. There are things that I love. There are things I like about the movie, but his performance I love. I think it's, uh, it is still George C. Scott being George C. Scott, Mm -hmm. but it's a very different type of him. Uh, Although I will say I recently saw uh, the film There Might Be Giants. They might be giants. Pardon me. Um, there will be blood. There will there be might be giants. <laughs> um, that was actually the name of a recent Game of Thrones episode. Um, <laughs> uh, but that's and so the um, and his performance in that is wonderful. If you get a chance to see, they might be giants. Go and watch it. It's astounding. Number five, Orson Welles, Citizen Kane. Okay. Number four, Michael Redgrave in the Browning version. Never saw that. Oh, it's wonderful. Number three. Humphrey Bogart in a lonely place, okay. which is a wonderful film and a wonderful performance. Uh, number two, Robert Duvall and the apostle. Okay. That's number Uh-oh. two now. What's yeah. number one now? Number one, Harry Dean Stanton in Paris, Texas. All right. Have you seen Paris, Texas? I never have. I saw oh, a documentary boy. about Harry Dean Stanton. That was pretty good. I was, I'm sure it is. I, did you see any clips from uh, Paris, Texas in that? Yeah. Yeah. He's astounding in it. It's really amazing. Okay. On to actress. You know, he, uh, by the way, Wait, you haven't seen Partly Fiction? The Harry Dean I've thing? not. Because he tells a story about making Paris, Texas and talking to a woman who worked on the, you know, because the character like doesn't talk mm-hmm. in Paris, Texas and talking to a woman who like said to him, you know, as a teenager, I went a long time without talking and like she told him why and he was like, oh, I wish I'd had this conversation before I made the movie. I would have used that. <laughs> so, anyway. All right, moving on to female performance. Number 10, Kathy Bates in Misery. Oh, that's a good one. Number nine, Anne Hathaway, Rachel Getting Married. One uh, that I feel like you would enjoy. Yes, that you would way appreciate. to go. And yeah, there's some Anne Hathaway haters out there. They need to say, see Rachel Getting Married. And they will, they will come around, I think. Like, I'm sure that people will eventually find Downtown Abbey funny again. <laughs> <laughs> I have to believe that. I wouldn't get out of bed in the morning. I believe that uh, the Anne Hathaway hate will fade. People may not like her public persona, but I'll say this. And like, I don't, why she, don't they like her public persona? I don't know. I think people just She's don't respond. That's the thing. I think people, uh, I think it's hip to not like uh, upbeat people. Yeah. And middle has got to like Jennifer Lawrence who goes and like says crass, vulgar things. I'm not a big fan of Jennifer Lawrence. You confuse me sometimes. Sometimes you seem so prudish. I am. <laughs> I like a little bit of decorum. For Fair men enough. and women, by the way, before you start, not you, but before listeners start lobbying yeah. accusations of, oh, would it be okay for whatever, Zach Galifianakis or whatever. Just, no, I don't like that kind of talk. I don't talk like talk about flatulence and shit. Flatulence and or shit. Um, on, on TV or, or, or in public at all. I don't like I, I hear you. Behave yourself. Men yeah. and women. We're trying, to run a, we're trying to run a civilization exactly. here. Exactly. All right. Uh, number eight, Bridget, I don't know if it's Myra or Mira, from Ali, Fear Eats the Soul. She is astounding. I need to see that. Yeah, I think you'd love it. Uh, it's coming to Criterion Blu-ray, so if they send it to me, I'll see it. There you go. Number seven, Judy Dench in Notes on a Scandal, what I think is her best performance oh, ever. I never saw that one. It's good stuff. Number six, Sally Hawkins in Happy Go Lucky. I never saw that Just one. a matter of time before a Mike Lee performance would show up. Number five, Diane, Diane Lane in Unfaithful. That's a good one. That is a great performance. Number four, Gloria Swanson, Sunset Boulevard. Hard to beat. Number three, Laura Linney in You Can Count on Me. Uh, an unsung film that everybody in the world needs to see. It feels like it was totally sung at the time and has kind of faded. Uh, 
it was to a certain extent. Uh, I think people were excited about. It. I think it might have been. It might have faded because Kenneth Lonergan, you know, the next movie he made was Margaret, yeah. which didn't work out in a number of ways. Yeah. Uh, I think if he had, it's a good movie, but it didn't. It's a wonderful film. Yeah. Uh, but I think if he had made, if he had followed it up maybe a year or two later with something notable, I think people might have gone been more right. willing to go back and, and remember that. If anything, people remember it as the thing that put Laura Linney and Mark Ruffalo on the map, and rightfully so. Number two. Francis, McDor- Francis McDormand in Fargo. Okay. And number one. It's probably not my number one. I'm already bummed. Oh, what's your number one? I would go with Deborah Carr and Black Narcissist. Uh, she made the top hundred. Yeah. Um, <laughs> number one, Jenna Rollins, A Woman Under the Influence. That's a good one. Yeah. yeah. I actually just saw that for the first time. I know you did. Recently. It's very exciting. Yeah, it was fantastic. I don't know what to say about it. Stay tuned because supporting is coming. I've already made my uh, top ten supporting actors, but I haven't uh, posted that yet. Um. By the way, by the way uh, sorry, like starting with last week, I feel like we've had this habit of like announcing possible like episode topics, mm-hmm. um, maybe to keep ourselves honest, yeah, to actually follow through. Hopefully, we'll, people will remind us, yeah. But we haven't done uh, John Cassavetti's profile. Episode. We have not. No, we should do that at some point. Well, I and you know, need, there's a couple of big ones I need to see. I, uh, there's, no, I forget the name of it. Oh well, Killing of a Chinese Bookie. No, I've seen that one. Gloria. Uh, I have not seen Gloria, and the other one is... Opening Night? I've seen Opening Night. Uh, I never saw Love Streams, which is actually getting a Criterion release. Yes, but I don't think that is one of the major ones. I I do. I actually... uh, I fell asleep in the... uh, (laughs) Not during the film. Uh, This was back in school, Uh and that was the only day in which I had three classes in one day, which was... That's a long day at Columbia. Um, Long classes. Yeah, that comes to about a 14-hour day. And... uh, I had about an hour and a half in between my morning class and my uh, Altman Cassavetes class, and so I went to the uh, sort of the little student lounge there, laid out on, down there. Yeah, laid out on the couch and thought, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna take a quick nap, and uh, I woke up four hours later, <laughs> and that means people just came and went, yeah. and I was just asleep the whole time. So, and I missed Love Streams, which is uh, unfortunate because I hear it is astounding. I know Roger oh. Ebert loved it. Okay. All right, so we should do that. Um, we should also talk about uh, Tweaked Audio, which is um, the earbuds that we use mm-hmm. uh, and that we endorse. Um, they, you can find them at tweakedaudio.com. That's T-W-E-A-K-E-D audio.com. Uh, they come in a variety of, of styles and colors. Mm-hmm. Um, and they are professional quality earbuds uh, at a low, low price. But if you go to, you go to the website that I mentioned before, mm-hmm. If you rewind like two seconds, you'll hear me say tweakedaudio.com. You go to tweakedaudio.com, but don't stop there. Yeah. Keep typing. Keep your fingers working. Oh, I don't like this visual at all. <laughs> you look audio. like a puppet master. <laughs> Have I not? Tweakedaudio.com slash pretension gets you all that for one third off and no shipping charges. That's tweakedaudio.com slash pretension. All right. Um. <laughs> We were weirdly silent for a second. We just wanted to let let it sit, let the the ads uh, sit in. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, um, let's get into it, shall we? Indeed. Uh, we were talking about characters just now. We were talking about characters, kind of, and it reminded me of a conversation um, you and I were having a couple weeks ago off mic. Mm-hmm. Uh, you and I felt differently to some extent about the new Jim Jarmusch film. Yeah. It's oh. convenient that it reminded you of that because I have a whole bunch of notes oh, directly related to the thing that it just reminded you of. Um, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, after 380 episodes almost, people are going to... 
people don't get that we know what the topic <laughs> is beforehand. Uh, I'm a, I'm ridiculous. Um, we were talking. You and I were talking off mic a couple weeks ago about the new Jim Jarmusch film, Only Lovers Left Alive, mm-hmm. which you didn't like as much as I did. Right. I still uh, enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, yeah. I thought it was brilliant. Um, but well, tell tell the listeners what you told me about why you didn't like it because that's what gave me the idea for the episode. One of the things that bothered me, and I went and saw it with my uh, co-host Josh Long, and we both enjoyed it. Um, like there's stuff in that film that you just can't argue with a uh, sense of uh, general tone, sense of place, use of music and performances. Um, and, uh, but ultimately the, the two main characters who are, I mean, I'm not spoiling anything. They're vampires. Yeah. Um, totally and vampires. <laughs> there's no, no question about <laughs> it. Um, and so, uh, so as they're talking, it's a, it's a husband and wife. They've been married for a while. Uh, for probably two about two hundred years, roughly. Um, I don't know that they say, do they? Uh, no, but it, they don't. But I think they do talk about uh, they talk about the people that they knew before they knew each other, and so I oh, think right, that right. times out okay. to maybe they've been married about two hundred years. Okay. Um, or who knows? It, clearly, they spend a lot of time apart, even though they are married. So who's to say? Yeah. But either way, um, they've both been alive. Uh, straight, uh, quote unquote, um, for maybe a thousand years, maybe longer. Yeah. Who's to say? And um, I think, I think she is meant to be older. That's the impression I got. Yes. Okay. Uh, and so, as they are talking to each other, one thing that happens regularly um, is that they talk about uh, the fa- like the famous people that they've known or that he has known specifically. And mm-hmm. then John Hurt in a really good performance plays uh, Christopher Marlowe. Um, that might be a spoiler, but I will. Oh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> um, and so, you know, uh, he's not in it a whole lot, but uh, when it cuts back to him, you know, he's talking about Shakespeare. He's got, a, I believe he has Shakespeare's photo up and like throws darts at it and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and so uh, one of the things that bothered me Throughout the film, one thing that they talk about is um, when talking about uh, normal, non, non-vampiric people. Mortals. Mortals, one could say. Uh, they, they refer to them as zombies, people mm-hmm. who just walk around and just focus on certain things. And because we only have, you know, 80, 85 years, uh, if we're lucky, uh, yeah, on that's, this, you never know. That's longer than I'm budgeting for. Yeah. If I'm living 85 <laughs> years, I need to start saving more. <laughs> um, and so... Uh, but because we only have a short time, there are things that we focus on that, of course, if you're if you're alive for a thousand years uh, or more, um, you have a certain sense of perspective about what what is and is not important. And so they refer to mortals as zombies because they're in their in their eyes. People are just walking around uh, oblivious to the things that matter. Right. And so Which is Western art. Yeah, <laughs> that's what matters to the people in this movie. Indeed. And so we'll, we'll come back to that. Yeah. And so, uh, and I, and I was okay with that. I felt a little judged, but whatever. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, that, that might be more, of I'm making, I'm making a joke. Um, so, uh, so anyway, um, the, uh, so I was okay with that. That was fine. And I understood what they were trying to do. They're trying to, by having these guys live through a good portion of humanity and talk to talk and talk and talk great thinkers and what eventually happened to them and the great artists and what eventually happened to them and how re- humanity responded, um, 
it's pulling back and viewing almost humanity itself as one character with it with uh, a mm-hmm. human trait and that sort of thing and so these guys wind up being these characters wind up being sort of metaphors uh for you could say god you could say perspective you could say time you could say history uh and so that's not what i think they're metaphors for well well hang on a sec yeah. um but what bothered me is that uh eventually as this husband and wife are talking, they they start name dropping, uh-huh. and they stop name dropping uh, celebrities. Isn't the word? Sorry, that's not right. But uh, famous historical artists and, and that sort of thing, and uh, and of course there's the Christopher Marlowe character. Um, but the way they talk about it, it reminded me. It's just like, oh, jeez, I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm uh, talking to me six years ago where it's like i saw this person and it's just i was talking to this person i'm gonna say the first and last name so you really get the effect <laughs> of who i'm talking about um and uh and part and the, the thing that got me was like this is husband and wife i don't talk to there are people that i know that i genuinely know that i am ex- that that when i take the time to look at it from a certain viewpoint i think this is pretty amazing that i know this person um certain actors and comedians and that sort of thing. And, and that's exciting to me. But at the same time, I also recognize that they're just people and that's, and that's infinitely more interesting and more important. Right. Um, but as I reference them to my wife, I don't use their full name. I just, <laughs> I say, well, you know who we're, I'm talking about it. The, the sheen of it has worn off because I know that these are just people, you know? Right. Um, and that doesn't wear that, that, doesn't seem to have worn off for these characters. And so they're saying it certainly by saying the full first and last name, they're saying it for our benefit. And in doing so, the characters as characters lessened to me a little bit. And I had a hard time latching on to them. And that's what we get to where I came in, where I don't necessarily disagree with what you're saying, but I don't think it's the point. Mm -hmm. I think the characters as characters aren't, what Jim Jarmusch is mainly going for. And right. that gets us to our, our episode title, which is character as metaphor. Yeah. Is it, uh, cause we've, we've done an episode, I don't know if we did a whole episode, uh, or, or just had, we've talked about before on the show, the idea of, um, cinema being viewed chiefly as a storytelling medium or mm. as a larger abstract, uh, artistic medium, in which storytelling is one of the things that can be done. Yeah. And so this is sort of a a microcosm of that. Just because you're telling a story, does it have to be uh, believable or have to be about the characters? Uh, You know, uh, I think obviously some of the best movies are, and some of the best movies, we were just talking about John John Cassavetes, like Mm -hmm. obviously some of the best movies have uh, really uh, precise and specific and insightful uh, in universal human human beings in them, mm-hmm. um, but Adam and Eve, as they're known, I don't know if we said the characters. Yes, yes, they're named Adam and Eve. Aren't human, uh, and they also, I think, aren't meant to be seen as characters. The fact they are metaphors for, to me, I mean, you mentioned a bunch of things that can also apply. What resonated with me was the idea that Adam and Eve are metaphors for fans or for. Uh, or some, uh, you know, patrons or acolytes, like people mm-hmm. who devote their life to not necessarily creating, although they are, um, Adam in particular is an artist himself, right? but uh, 
they see sort of like the monuments men. They devote their life. <laughs> this is something else you're talking about off mic. Yeah. Um, they devote their lives to art and they see it as the most important thing. That's what, you know, these zombies that the other people being zombies are classified as such because they aren't able to spend all their time thinking about art. Uh, now it's very specifically, I don't know if this is a blind spot from Jim Jarmusch or if this is part of the movie. Uh, it's very specifically Western art. Yes. There's not a lot of talk about, you know, uh, uh, about, about Asian arts or African arts. It's European and, right. Um, you know, I guess later American art, you know, mm-hmm. um, post post colonial, I guess, American art. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think they represent people who a are devoted to art uh, above all and also b have the privilege either because of their wealth or because of just their race, um, be it the be it white people or which they both are. Or vampires, yeah, extremely white people. <laughs> They're extremely white people. Yeah. Uh, the people who have the luxury of spending all their time thinking about art. You yeah. know, one of the things that comes up uh, never, I just, never overtly stated, but both Adam and Eve always have tons and tons of money. We have no idea how they make their money, right? But they always have huge uh, stacks of cash yeah. uh, <laughs> everywhere. It just literally, it's literally lying about the place. There, mm. there's just money on the floor, and I think that sort of speaks to what I'm talking about here. Jim Jarmus doesn't feel the need to make them fully realistic characters the way you and I would uh, interact with them. In the same way, he doesn't feel the need to tell you where they get their money from mm-hmm. because both things are just a part of the metaphor. Mm-hmm. So that's what I wanted to talk about is the idea of character as metaphor before it's before their character. Yeah. You know? Um, did you ever see the movie I talk about all the time, The Reflecting Skin? Uh, no. I Which is another uh, v- vampire movie, right? Kind of. Um, I mean, I guess saying whether or not it's a vampire movie might be kind of a spoiler. Oh, sorry, everybody. Um, but no, uh, it's about, uh, uh, yeah, the story, one of the many storylines in Reflecting Skin is that a boy thinks that the widow, the British widow who lives in his town or just outside on a farm outside his town um, is a vampire and that her relationship with his recent world war ii vet older brother Mm -hmm. uh is actually sinister in some way and that she's trying to she's draining his blood or trying to kill him yeah whether or not she's an actual vampire is not uh uh not something i'll get into and it's also not the point again yeah um i talked about um i was on uh the aforementioned Kyle Anderson's podcast what the fuck are you watching yeah and i suggested talking about the reflecting skin because i felt like it's it's a crazy enough movie to fit their premise. I felt the same way about No Holds Barred. <laughs> okay. Um, but it's also a movie that I love to talk about, and not a lot of people have seen The Reflecting Skin. Um, and um, one of the co-hosts, Kyle's co-host, Lincoln, mm-hmm. uh, didn't like it very much, and I and I felt like his reasons are very similar to your reasons for not being quite able to um, latch on to Only Lovers Left Alive the way that I did, mm-hmm. in that he couldn't understand the motivations of the characters and that's a losing game if you're yeah. you know trying to uh, trying to uh parse the motivations of the characters and the reflecting skin is madness because that's not what they're there for they're there as a whole grab bag of metaphors mm-hmm. um so these two incidences that conversation and the one with you got me thinking about this what are your thoughts on the idea of character as metaphor is it allowable 
Oh, absolutely. Um, but you know, one thing that you and I go back, uh, we haven't said this in a while, but we have talked about it, that somehow specificity in the, in the circumstances and the traits of a character can actually, not always, but can actually broaden the, not the scope, but I don't know, you know what I'm trying to say, and I can't exactly put it into words. Yeah. But somehow a character can be remarkably specific and yet seem to be a stand-in for something that it doesn't matter what your specific st- circumstances are. You feel like you relate to this character, yeah. even though they are in a in this in this film in a very specific set of circumstances. That actually speaks to one of my pet peeves in movies, mm-hmm. even in movies like I like that I like, um, like say Neil Butte's Your Friends and Neighbors. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a movie where they clearly live in some bi- big American city. They never say what yes. city they live in, right? And I hate that because I understand the idea behind it is, hey, this could be any city in America, right? But you know what? You know what? Every person who lives in a city in America has in common that they live in a specific city. Yeah. You know, no one is walking around not knowing what city they're in and treating it like it's normal. And it's also weird to not point it out to me. If and those characters, if they specified that those characters live in New York, I doubt anybody in Chicago is going to be like, well, we, yeah. do- we dodged a bullet there, <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, but that's, and so I feel like maybe that's, that, that's the thing that gets me is, as I was going through, and I made a, a pretty extensive uh, list of uh, metaphorical characters that I really respond to, uh, and a, a, num- a number of them wind up uh, being analogous, which is not exactly the same as metaphor. Okay. Um, but uh, as I started doing that, I That's found funny. that the ones I responded to are um, are very specific. And I think that's the thing that got me about Only Lovers Left Alive, is that these characters are specific enough and also I like one of the things that I like about the film is that he really makes you feel like what it is to be a vampire specifically living only at night you never see daylight right yeah and it's something you don't totally realize until you're just like yeah that is a dark film I guess it would have to be wouldn't it (laughs) it's like why aren't they ever hitting traffic oh right um uh for the same reason that I enjoy going to the grocery store at 4 a.m and so uh so that's the – and that's the thing. The, the characters are specific enough both in their traits, in their hobbies, and in their relationships that I felt like it was perfectly okay for me to approach them as characters, especially because they had emotional arcs uh, in their relationship and individually and in their relationship to art uh, and humanity in general. And so if – oddly enough, if he had gone less specific, I would have no problem seeing them as metaphors – or if he had been even more specific and made them as like 100% realistic in the way that they were relating to each other, I would have been able to see them more as metaphors in that too. But somehow it's it's kind of in this in this middle zone where I have a problem. I felt like either go all the way right. or or scale it back. So I think that's the. I don't think that's necessarily. Uh, a hard and fast rule but for me the ones that work best as metaphor are the ones that still can hold their own as character as specific characters but uh before we move on to your list because i want to hear what some of the things are i think what goes hand in hand with this uh for me mm-hmm. and this is just my read is that um i also don't see only lovers left alive as a movie where the story is super important it's more about atmosphere right that i agree with you and so yeah if this were a movie that were plot driven 
mm-hmm. and then had these, um, uh, you know, less defined, more, metaphor- more metaphorical characters that would clash with me. But because it's all of, uh, you know, the characters are as defined as their story is mm-hmm. to me, it all works. I guess, I mean, that's something that uh, is hard to put into words um, uh, when when I'm talking about a movie that I like is just the way that it, everything feels of, of a whole or, you know, um, it certainly the, the does cohesion, and... I guess is something that I look for that I look for in, in movies. And I so... think that's something that you'll find. And I would venture to say, I haven't seen limits of control, but I'd say in every Jarmish film, like there is always a very complete and I think often insular world, uh, right. per film in every yeah. film. Um, what else is on your list? Oh, go ahead. Real quick, uh, two things. Number one, uh, I mentioned that analogy doesn't always equal metaphor, and you seem to have a response to that. We'll get to that in a moment. Um, but oh, the other no, thing, I will say what my response was oh, okay. later, actually before I forget is that that is something when you said that the idea of characters being more uh, analogous or analogous, analogous is analogous. I think. Yeah, um, I thought of TV, which uses that, that okay, version yeah. of storytelling much okay. more often because television is often telling large stories through smaller stories yeah, yeah. and the smaller stories will contain elements mm-hmm. that are clearly, you know, there was a good wife episode where Sarah Silverman, uh, who was great in the episode played, do you know, Ashley Madison.com? The, it's like a dating site that's specifically for married people to cheat yes, on their spouses. Yes. Yes. I think it is, uh, horrible. Uh, I'm fine with it. Um, I'm fine with it existing. I have no reason to use it, but I'm okay with it existing. Uh, I don't think it's going to encourage more married people to cheat. And also, I don't care if it does. There's only one person I don't want cheating. Only, I guess two people, including myself. What about me? I don't care if you cheat on your wife, Tyler. That's very rude to Jen. <laughs> I'm going to tell you, you well, said that. <laughs> to be clear, I, I don't care if Jen cheats on you either. It's not my, what the fuck, what man? It's not my business. Anyway... Um, Sarah Silverman played essentially an Ashley Madison type. She was someone who ran a website like that and was being sued. Yeah. Um, and uh, it clearly had a lot to do with what was going on with Alicia and the fact that she has this philandering husband and hmm. all, all this stuff. So that's when you talk about characters being analo- analogous. I don't know why I just want to say analogous. Um, uh, I don't know. So it's Magneto Magneto. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think of a television way of storytelling. That's interesting. But it can happen in movies too, obviously. Yeah, and uh, and so I will. Uh, oh, and another thing, and th- you know what? This might be an episode. I don't know. Um, one thing that I've that I've noticed that uh, that you say, and isn't that fun when someone says, "Here's something you say a lot." Uh-huh. What do you think of this? Um, well, as a, I mean, as a narcissist, I can't wait to hear. Oh, okay. <laughs> positive, negative. At least like we're talking about morning. me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 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 um, all eyes on me. Uh, all eyes on Zoidberg. That's one of my favorite lines from Futurama. Um, I don't know that one. Uh, so you've mentioned uh, that the way that you feel like I approach film is through character and story. Do you nece- do you instinctively associate the two? Because I don't. I think I do, actually. I think character... Uh, absolutely i do story not necessarily that's actually yeah that's interesting because there are plenty of movies that i could think of where that's uh not not you know i think immediately of days and confused it's not a movie about story right it's very much a movie about characters yeah um yeah, like i guess i do instinctively lump the two together but you're right it's sort of like how i lump math and science on one in english and history 
Like I always thought English and history, really. Yeah. To me, those were, there was a bifurcation there in like school studies. Mm-hmm. I think it was, what it came down to is I liked English and history and I hated math and science. That's probably what it came down to. Fair enough. Um, both, both of those included a lot of, uh, reading prose, not reading like numbers. Yeah. Um, which, uh, tend to be kind of impenetrable to me. Um, Anyway, so, yeah, I think you pointed out a bias that I shouldn't have. And it is, that's the thing is, anytime you talk about a character arc, that is, one could say that's inherently story-like, but not necessarily. Like, Citizen Kane, just off the top of my head, Citizen Kane is very much a character thing, a character-driven film. And the character does change, but not in relation to any one thing, any one plot or the plot is the character in that sense so i think that is a character driven film as opposed to jaws or star wars where that is story driven with strong characters in it um i think i think when i think story i think of something external uh that the characters respond to even the if the external thing is another character um whereas i think a character driven film is one that it's something is still very much driven and it but it's internal um, but that's, that's just me. But then of course you get stuff like days and confused and Nashville and that kind of thing. Yeah. And that's, well, I don't know if I agree that story is necessarily external. I mean, I guess there is in the sense that, um, there's this structure to it mm-hmm. in a way that life doesn't have. But you think of like a lot of the best noir movies, the story unfolds because of the decisions the lead character makes. Yeah. Uh, and therefore it's, the chief engine of the story is is the character. Yeah. And so I don't know I would consider that external. You know, it's odd, actually. That that might speak to a bias in me. I think I tend to respond more to uh, heroes or, or protagonists that are reactive to the world around them rather than they want to do something and the antagonist gets in the way. Um, anyway, sorry. Again, that's you, a whole other episode. As long as we're talking about the episode. Oh, though, man. All right. Uh you mentioned on your list there, Anne Hathaway and Rachel getting married. That's a great movie that is um, about character more than story. Oh, no question about it. I love that movie so much. It's wonderful. Um, <laughs> that was my favorite that year, right? It was. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, okay. So a few on I like my... That you know. I forget what my favorites are, but you know yours and mine. Uh, do I always? I don't know if I always do. Um, but that one, I, I remembered my favorite was The Visitor and yours is Rachel getting married. Both films that didn't show up on a lot of best lists or anything like that um both nominated in in lead acting categories though so okay good for them absolutely uh i think they're doing all right (laughs) so okay uh here's one that um as i went through i started actually uh uh, clumping these together based on what the metaphor was and so uh here's family uh, one that I went with was American Buffalo, which I remember years ago, a teacher said that one of the interpretations of that film, I mean, people have said that it's very much about, you know, the American dream uh, and and uh, the idea of success and people being willing to do whatever, uh, whatever they can at any level. Um, and, you know, uh, the character of Teach always says it's just business. But another way of looking at it is an abusive family a dysfunctional abusive family relationship with teach as the father don as the mother and as teach as an abusive father don as a protective mother and bobby as the victim child and so when you look at that if you put that little stencil on it it's fascinating 
and it works a lot. Sure. And when you look at it like that, I think the point of any, I mean, any metaphor is so that you understand that thing better. Would you say that's true? Yeah. And I think part of it is also understanding it better by having some distance from it because yeah. often the best, um, uh, movies about the movies that say things about family aren't necessarily about actual, like nuclear families. Right. Like, I mean, many of them are, but, um, I don't know. I keep wanting to go back to TV, but TV is well, that's fine because TV has the same characters in the same situation for an extended period of time. It's a great, it's a great breeding ground for metaphors about family. Oh, yeah. It's often not actual families. You know, it's the mm-hmm. offices of Sterling Cooper and partners, or it's the, uh, the Scooby gang and Buffy, the vampire slayer. That's what mm-hmm. they call themselves. Ah, yes. Uh, anyway, go on. Uh, but so along those lines, I mean, it's, I don't think I would ever, I don't think I would instinctively and certainly not intellectually ever sympathize with a man, with a father or a mother who is abusive either verbally or physically to their kid. Um, But I think part of um, approaching and also I don't think I, well, I kind of understand it because, you know, I, I've been in arguments where it's just like, I get so uh, angry that you feel like you want to express that physically in some way. You don't necessarily want to hurt a person, but sometimes like, I just, I could just punch a wall, you know, like you, you've heard that I'm sure. And so, yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, no question about it. I've, I've punched a wall and I uh, broke a blood vessel in my hand, but, um, because I'm quite weak. So, uh, <laughs> but that's the thing. I feel like with, American Buffalo, if we're putting this metaphor onto it, if we're putting this stencil onto it, it helps you understand, again, Teach is an asshole. You're not sympathetic with him. But when you look at just the frustration that he deals with every day and the frust- and, and feeling like he is unsupported by Don and certainly by Bobby and that Don is constantly torn between loyalty to Teach and loyalty to Bobby and Teach feeling just perpetually alone in this, you you. Again, you don't approve, but you can see how he gets so angry that he just lashes out and you have a, you don't sympathize with his actions. And as a result, you don't sympathize with him, but you at least understand it a little bit more. And I think that's fascinating. And what is it? I think you referenced it recently, uh, maybe off air. I don't remember, but, um, maybe it was somebody else. I don't remember, but, uh, in the, in the liner notes for, um, was it the, the sunset tree? The John Darnielle album? Yeah. Or the Mountain Ghost album? Yeah. yeah. Where one of the dedications in it is to his abusive stepfather, and it said, yeah. like, may you find the, the peace in death that you that eluded you in life. Yeah, yeah. And it winds up being this very, like, oh, man, yes, this guy... For those who guy, don't know, The Sunset Tree is an album entirely about the fact that John Darnielle was raised by a very abusive stepfather. Yeah, and I mean, if you listen to that album, I mean, it comes through. Yeah, uh, it's, he, he doesn't hide it in most of the songs. Yeah, Some of the songs he does. Yeah, I mean, it's terrifying yeah. and, and very depressing at times. And it would be easy to just look at that situation, especially if you're in the middle of it, and just think that guy is an asshole at the ver- and a monster, and there is no good in him. But if you look at it from a certain point of view, I have no doubt that John Darnielle probably did some counseling and 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 that and yeah. therapy and and got to a point where he realized this as as terrible as what this guy did is, and it is, we can't condone it he probably was as miserable as the pe- as the people that uh, he made miserable mm-hmm. that doesn't excuse it at all 
but you realize, oh, wow. It's different than a movie villain who hurts other people and then cackles the whole time, you know, because he's loving it. This is somebody who's so miserable that he has to spread it to other people. And so I feel like uh, that's what I that's one of the things that I get from American Buffalo. And I'll never forget. It was, it was an acting teacher in uh, in college. Um, uh, no, I'm sorry. It was a directing teacher as we were talking about acting. And he talked about that stencil. And the minute he said it, it fits so well for me. And it, and it got me thinking about people who can commit what is, in many ways, an unforgivable crime and just realize every, anybody can do anything mm. if, if the circumstances are right or if, or if things fall into place a certain way. And thus, that doesn't mean that you can condone that action, but it certainly – that also means that anybody is redeemable, I think. Yeah. Um, there was a review. Did you see uh, Blue Caprice? I did not. There was a review. I heard it was only so-so. Yeah, it is only so-so. But um, it has a lot of great things about it. But there was a review. I, I want to say it was Ernest, Hard- Ernest Hardy in the LA Weekly, but I'm not sure mm-hmm. who was talking about. Because it's about the, for the people who don't know the Beltway snipers. Yeah. Um, and it, and he starts off talking about that. And then he said, but at the, movie, at the beginning of the movie, the character is not a murder, murderer yet. He is, like the rest of us, a potential murderer. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> that really stuck with me. Yeah, and that's something that actually comes out in uh, 12 Angry Men, which I I also have here, but that's not what I'm going to move on to. Well, yeah, I want to move on to, uh, I guess, I, I, this is why there's two of us doing this podcast, because you're making me think about things that I hadn't thought about, because I was thinking about, when I was thinking about character as metaphor, I was thinking about a character as metaphor more so than character. Whereas you're, oh, okay. you have examples that are very much both, which is, uh, yeah. uh, again, I don't think one's better than the other, but I want to talk about a movie... And that's a personal thing on my part. I will say that the nine times out of ten, the better the character works as a character, the more effective a metaphor it will be for me. Okay, but that's for that's just for me though. I don't I don't put that on other people. Um, I want to talk about a movie that you and I disagreed on, uh, and that a lot of people disagreed with me on, and ended up. It's I consider it one of the formative movies of recent years for me. I uh, used to talk about it a lot on the podcast. It's been a All few right. years now. Uh, it's Michael Mann's Public Enemies. Oh, yes. Which is a movie that I think made me realize that I look for different things in movies than some of the other people that I know. Yeah. Because was, I loved it so much. It's it, when you started using words like formalism. Yeah. Because, yeah, so many people that I knew didn't like it, and I thought it was so amazing. Uh, and to me, uh, one of the complaints is that it's, I guess, ostensibly a biopic about john dillinger in which you learn nothing about john dillinger yeah but because it's about to me it's about like the metaphor of like tectonic plates crashing together in a mountain forming out of it the what was going on in the country at the time formed john dillinger and people like him Mm -hmm. that's the metaphor to me and so a mountain isn't a character you know a tidal wave isn't a character right john dillinger is uh, uh, as uh, you know johnny depp's john dillinger is just representative of what uh the country at the time of the depression and prohibition wrought mm-hmm. uh and so that's enough for me i don't care that we don't know anything about him yeah uh but I'm, I, I guess that's where i was coming from at a different point than you are yeah because you like when it's both and that's interesting the the, the analogy that you, you, like you just use ways. about i sure do i can go both ways on this uh, one AC. um and, and so uh but that's interesting the the metaphor that you just used uh-huh. with the mountain uh because my first thought is a mountain isn't a character. That's right. It's a mountain that people climb, they interact with, they acknowledge and say it's beautiful. Like they, they are looking at the effect. The effect becomes a thing that people 
it becomes a symbol of the thing of, of the tectonic shifting and all the other words that you said um, <laughs> that I don't totally understand. Um, no, I understand the idea of it. I know what mountains are. And so I'm, <laughs> what am I, some kind of idiot? Um, but uh, and so that's that's the way I see it is the only way to know that that happened is the mountain. And the more and the more you understand the mountain itself, the more you understand about the process that created it is it a small mountain is it a big mountain uh that but sort it's of thing also about the fact that people to stick with the mountain thing a mountain is an obstacle that you have to work around that will do things to you or that will you know Absolutely. turn you into the downer party or you know people <laughs> people die on mountains you know um christian bale is melvin purvis in the movie mm-hmm. who I would, I would contend is more so the main character than john dillinger if you had to pick one if you um, had to yes <laughs> um he uh you know he turns into something uh, yeah. that's morally compromised because of the mountain that he's contending with. Mm-hmm. He has to adapt to it. Yeah. Uh, and so I think it is the thing you're talking about. Yeah. And that's the thing is him, re- him reacting to, okay, we're just going to keep it going. Him reacting to this mountain, I feel like would have been more effective for me. And by the way, I think as time has gone on, I think I've actually come more to your side on public enemies than mine at the time. But if we're going if we're going with this metaphor, um, I guess this analogy more is more the term, but whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, then, if we're having a character who's literally responding to it and it is shaping who he is, then I feel like there's a greater responsibility to understand what the thing is that is shaping him. Um, but that's anyway. That's not. But what if his inability to understand it is the point? Now we're talking. <laughs> you know what? I'm on if. I think I'm on board. Let's okay. do it. Let's okay. do it. Um, oh man, I'm, I'm I like it when people give me an out, uh, and you just did. So um, okay, and that gives me, and that also, on top of everything else, gives me a wonderful transition. All right, all right. People unable to understand a thing. Mm-hmm. I started to talk a little bit about it with American Buffalo, which is, you know, in in some ways, you look at a man who. Or, or or a woman, but a man. Specific, I think more domestic abuse is probably husbands and fathers and that sort of thing. Um, if that's not true, I apologize. I don't mean to speak generally, but uh, but the uh, you know I look at that and say like you you love this woman, you love this child. How on earth could you ever do such a thing? It seems while I understand anybody's capable of it, including me, it seems so uh, foreign, even more foreign. Maybe the most foreign thing, the the one thing that I would say nobody can get their mind around is child molestation and murder, which brings mm-hmm. us, of course, to M. Okay. Peter Laurie, the character's name is Hans Becker. He plays such an important role. His character is so, I mean, his character is in many ways crazy, but not completely. Um... I think there's a nice specificity to him uh, from the thing that he whistles to what he does when he's looking at himself in a mirror. It's very strange uh, and I like it a lot. It's a really it's a lived in character. But anyway, um, that character, you have cops who are a little corrupt. Um, You have criminals who actually show a certain degree of uh, ethical code amongst them. So you have both sides. Neither one, neither one of them seems like they can really understand the other, but they understand the system. And then there's one person 
who throws the whole system out of whack and nobody can sympathize with him. And so that is the unforgivable. That is the unforgivable sin. That is what Peter Laurie is. It is the one thing like look at look at the society around you. Everyone, there's there's things that we don't like that we don't approve of, but we at least understand. And if we if you understand something, I think you become sort of, sort of comfortable with it. You at least understand how you can maneuver around mm-hmm. it. Then there's always one thing that just that you can't get around. It doesn't fit. I'd say the Joker in the Dark Knight fits this as well. Um, and yeah. it, and of course, the Joker is a nice uh, metaphor for terrorists, and I think it fits well. I mean, we understood how to deal with how to deal with communists. We understood how to deal with any number of things. Then terrorists come along and realize, oh, this is different. Yeah. This really throws a whole wrench in how we deal with things. And it winds up being this mountain that you're talking about that the reason that you that it changes you is because it's not going to change. It can't change, at least not in the traditional sense. And so I feel like um the character of Hans Becker, again, a very specific character, one that I find myself having sympathy for. And yet, of course, I am repulsed by. Um, I feel like he's a, a nice big metaphor uh, for the thing that nobody understands. Yeah. Um, Even I, criminals who live outside the system don't understand him. I hadn't thought about this, but yeah, villains often are more metaphor than character. I'm glad when you said child molestation, I thought, is he going to talk about happiness or is he going to talk about the woodsman or little children or um, yeah. And, but both of those movies are both very good, but are both very much about getting inside the character. Like actually, whereas the character in M is less understandable. Yeah. And weirdly as serious as M is and as serious as, um, child, uh, murder and molestation is the movie I thought of. And the character I thought of was, uh, Vinnie Jones in the Midnight Meat Train. Oh, okay. and how he is also so something you it is impossible to contend with. Oh yeah. Um, and there are things even in, I don't know if you've seen the Midnight Meat Train. Oh yeah. Right? I don't know if the listeners have. It's a really underrated movie that um, got sadly sort of lost yeah. when Lionsgate changed uh, yeah. changed ownership. Back if in you are a horror fan, you have a responsibility to see it. Yeah, I think. it's fantastic. Um, and uh, but. Vinnie Jones is, uh, I think, he's a metaphor for f- the fears of urban life. Mm-hmm. Um, be them both the, you know, the dangers of the subway with uh, regular crime and stuff, but also the sort of uh, um, endemic and almost normalized corruption mm-hmm. that any large city is built on. You yeah. know, like yeah, his crime takes place in the subway, so the. You've got the sort of Bernard Getz like uh, anti like yeah. uh, crime and, and fears of crime going on, but he's also an incredibly well dressed uh, person who carries a briefcase, and he represents also this um, institutionalization yeah. of uh, I don't know victimizing and uh, brutalization and stuff mm-hmm. like that, and also it's just really fucked up. Yeah, uh, and there are things, and that, also surprisingly funny. <laughs> yeah, often at the same time, um, and there are things. Uh, included in the movie. I won't spoil it for people who haven't seen it, but there's a scene. I'll say it's a scene of Finney, Vinnie Jones shaving, but he's not. It's not what he's doing. No. Um, that is. It's a, it's a scene that has no explanation whatsoever. It's just incredibly gross and really creepy. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, I'm okay with that kind of thing. I don't need to know why he's doing what he's doing in the mirror at that point. Mm-hmm. Again, people who've seen the movie who know will know what I'm talking about. 
uh, he just it's it's about what he represents, and I don't uh, again it doesn't bother me. Yeah, but it doesn't seem to bother you either. At least not in the midnight meat train. No, and that's you know what that speaks to what I was talking about earlier, which was his character is so nondescript that he's pure metaphor. Right. You know, and so if they had started hinting at like the life he used to have or 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 specific uh, emotional character traits or something like that, then but didn't carry through and make him a full fledged character. I that would have frustrated me. So that's that goes to what I'm saying. Usually I like it. I like metaphorical characters to be more or characters that function as metaphor. Pardon me. Um, I like them to be more specific, but you can scale it back and that's what his character is. And I'm fine with it. Uh, now we should probably wrap up pretty soon. Oh boy. All um, right. But, uh, I want to talk about a couple more movies because uh, this is getting into you and I don't disagree that often on the podcast, right? but, and you, and it's not like we're fighting here, but we are getting to some of our differences of, an approach. Yeah. And so I want to bring up a couple of movies that you and I both love. Mm-hmm. One of which has already been mentioned on the episode thus far. Um, but I'm wondering if maybe we approach them for different reasons. One is my favorite movie of all time. Barton Fink. Yep. Uh, the other one is the aforementioned black narcissist, mm-hmm. um, which, I'm, which admittedly I haven't seen in a while. Okay. But to go back to your like American Buffalo thing, clearly black Nar- narcissist, you can pinpoint the things that are true and human about all of the characters. And yeah, that. but me being who I am, I see that, I guess, subconsciously I see that as secondary. To me, it's more about, uh, it's a metaphor of sexual repression um, and uh, sexual repression being imposed by those in power, mm-hmm. um, be that, um, you know, uh, be that the church or a little imperialistic power, which they are both in that movie. Yeah. They represent both. Uh, and what that does to a person in general or a person in particular or people in general. Mm-hmm. I see that first and then I see the characters. And I guess it's the same with Barton Fink. I see it more as the oh, metaphors. Absolutely. Um, than about the characters, even though I, in both cases, I, uh, you know, don't, I don't contend with the fact that those, that the movies are full of real characters. Yeah. I mean, each, okay. Uh, I will say first off, uh, I think probably any Michael Powell film, the characters are doing double duty uh-huh. as full-fledged, fully realized characters and metaphor. I mean, I've got Life and Death of Colonel Blimp in here, and um, and Red, yeah, Sh- I mean, Red Shoes has got it. Uh, if you know the history of where the Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, where that name came from, yeah. it came from almost a literal uh, surrogate yeah. character uh, for a certain type of uh, you know, English soldier. Yeah. The main uh, character's name is not Colonel Blimp. Yeah. The only <laughs> yeah, reference to Colonel Blimp is the title. So it literally what I'm talking about. It took a metaphor. Yeah. And then it spent two hours and 45 minutes. Yeah. Developing uh, that while also retaining it. Yeah. Um, and then with, uh, Barton Fink and that speaks very, I mean that whole, yeah, that whole thing is metaphorical, but, um, but that speaks to what I was talking about. I think in the writing and in the performance, I mean, those characters are very specific. I mean, uh, Charlie Meadows, is a very specific character in his job, in his demeanor, in the way he speaks, and what he says. But he also, you know, I, I, I'm certainly not the first person to say this, and I'd venture to say I'm not the last. Maybe I will be. Who's to say? Um, Hollywood as hell, and a lot of people say that, or one could say purgatory, um, and a lot of people say that John Goodman's character is the devil, and I don't think so. I think Lipnick is the devil. He's the one, he's the reason you're there. And Charlie Meadows 
you know, he, he just lives there. See, I think, because I, I don't see it as being Hollywood as hell. Uh, I think that, that, uh, that Charlie, that, that John Goodman's character is meant to be Satan. And part of the point is that he's the common man. That, uh, um, Barton, oh, spent, yes, Barton spends right. all this time thinking that he's elevating the common man as he's, as if he's some sort of champion for them. Yeah. But really, he doesn't understand that banality is where all the evil lies and the common man that he thinks that he, uh, is doing some great service to will, uh, unthinkingly chew him up and spit him out. And that's, and that's, and, and Charlie rules over that hotel not literally he's not mm-hmm. walking around <laughs> like he's uh like he owns the place yeah but uh it is his domain he can make the hallways light on fire yeah uh, if he wants uh so i i think i personally i think the hollywood is hell thing is there but it's also i think kind of a red herring to well me. and that's and that's uh the common man thing i love you and i've talked about that before because it is that and i think that's a much deeper metaphor and one that i think is because uh, of course we're dealing with Cohen brothers who are both intelligent and very sensitive i think uh, very sensitive people and yeah and it's on the hollywood as hell metaphor if you look at it like purely like that and i don't think you should but um I think the fact that Meadows lives at the hotel and can't actually leave um, and he seems like he has tremendous power within there, but he still can't leave. Um, And it is Lipnick keeping Barton Fink in Hollywood. Like you are going to you're still under contract and all that kind of thing. Want him to stay at the. No, he didn't at at the uh, what's it called? The the Hotel Earl. Hotel Earl. You're the one that used to have the T-shirt. Yeah. I don't have that T-shirt anymore. Why? Because uh, a friend of mine didn't know how to change a tire, and so I had to go help her change a tire, and I was laying on the ground and oh, got no. stains on the shirt that uh, never came off, no matter how many times I washed it. That's too bad. That uh, that was a good shirt and yeah. Uh, discontinued. Yeah, that person should learn how to. Everyone should learn how to change a tire if you drive. If you don't drive, then you, you're off the hook. Yeah. But changing I, a tire is pretty easy once you know how to do yeah, it. Yeah, I theoretically know how to change a tire. I also, I have had, I have changed a tire before. I also do uh, spend uh, yearly fees on AAA. So, uh, you know, who wants to waste money? So, um, I like to create jobs. That's that's what I do. Um, and I, yes, and I, uh, going back to the Charlie Meadows thing, because I think that is a deeper metaphor and one that I think is much more biting than Hollywood being hell. Mm-hmm. This idea, it takes artists to task because I think, artists tend to look at the common man in a very condescending way. They say it's sympathetic, but it's very condescending as though like, I mean, he says it all the time. You know, I envy you, you know, the drill, (laughs) you're so much less than I am. I'm so, you know, and not unlike state in Maine, which says that, ah, small town life. And it's like, yeah, these guys are just as manipulative Uh and exploitative as any of the Hollywood guys, which I love. Um, and, uh, and it really, makes uh barton as horrible as as charlie meadows turns out to be spoilers it really it really points a finger at barton and says you know you you think you know this stuff come on um yeah that's a that's a great example and that yeah that whole film has uh multiple levels of metaphor all right what else did you need to get to because i do want to need to get to okay boy oh boy just gonna let you let you peruse your list all right narrow it down is that the list is like a billion movies long? Uh, yes, it is. <laughs> I was trying to. Here's the thing. How long I, did you think this episode was going to be? 
I don't know. Uh, here, let me explain. I feel like we could go for six I, hours. And I like had I had almost no confidence in my ability to talk about this, so I overprepared. Okay. Um, and so, uh, okay, I'm going to. But you know, we're such windbags. This is what I've learned from the show. I know. Is that this is what I used to do? Is come up with a bunch of examples of what the topic was. Now I know I need like three good ones. And, and the rest will just come. They'll either come or we'll spend so long talking about the midnight meat train <laughs> that we'll get to everything that we need to say based yeah. on that alone. Okay. I will tear through some of them and then okay. spend more time on others. Okay. Okay. You Plain- don't have to get all of those. That's too many. That's true. Uh, some of these, again, because of the metaphor, there's one metaphor and a lot of these I can bundle them together. Um, planes, trains, and automobiles. Mm-hmm. Del Griffith is the embodiment of annoyance. <laughs> everything about him is annoying from the way he sleeps to the way he dresses to the way he moves to the way he talks to the things he says everything about him is grating that is the, that is it, there, he's very specific the job he has the his history his personality it's very specific but even his luggage is annoying everything about him is annoying and so i mean one thing that i like about the film is that it's about ultimately sympathizing with other people and i i feel like part of us uh as as humans i think we look at uh monsters uh like in m and that sort of thing and i and we don't understand them so i think we maybe take extra steps to try to understand them because they seem so enigmatic to us meanwhile people that are merely annoying was like fuck them all day long <laughs> you know and and I think this is a film that says, yeah, even they have a story. Even the people that annoy you have a story. But I, I, um, I agree. I would go one step further and say that Dell's not only the embodiment of annoyance, he's the embodiment of Steve Martin's character's uptightness. Oh, absolutely. So uh, Steve Martin is like carrying him along on this trip um, as, if it, as if he's, that's his baggage. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, and, and I, I really enjoy that movie. So, um, okay. Twelve Angry Men. It's a movie about, among other things, the law. Mm-hmm. It's purely, it's very metaphorical. The jurors don't even have names. Two of them do at the end, and that's it. But juror number eight, that's Henry Fonda. He is the ideal. Juror number three is the reality. The ideal is we should always try to remain as objective as possible. Juror number three is, yeah, we can't. We're human beings. We have past experiences. We're always going to bring stuff to them. Uh, okay. The proposition is about nationalism. Um, I think... Uh, in which you have these two, there are three brothers, but two of them are more are very active. One of them says, the only thing that matters is our family. And there's nothing wrong with the idea. Family is very important. But when you do family to the exclusion of all else, he murders everybody else pretty readily. But not his family, because that's the only thing that matters. Whereas um, uh, the other brother starts to sort of reject his family, even though he still loves them, he sort of rejects them and realizes... Loving my family doesn't give me the free pass to screw everybody else. And I feel like from a global standpoint, that's a, you know, it's it's important to have pride in your country and defend your country. But if you do that to the exclusion of everybody else, then I feel like you're, you lose perspective, uh, which takes me then into any number of movies about war. Uh, first off, uh, while I was while I was working over the last week, I happened to throw in all the Lord of the Rings movies. Uh, not at the same time; that'd be weird. Um, but uh, you know, uh, consecutively, and I mean that's that. I knew this already, but that thing is World War Two 
all over the place. Sauron is Hitler. Mordor is Germany. I'd say Saruman is Mussolini. Aragorn has a Churchill quality. Treebeard, Grima Wormtongue, and, and the Hobbits are very pacifist. Uh, someone in there is probably the U.S. I'm not quite sure. Um, and I thought that was that's just very interesting. And, and it was I'm it's pretty well documented at the time. Okay. But um, but as far as war in general. Uh, one thing that I like, uh, the best years of our lives, a film you and I love yes. is about the consequences of war and the three men who come back. Each one is a different consequence. Frederick March's character is emotional, but it doesn't have any real effect on his social standing. Dana Andrews, however, doesn't have a job coming back. His girlfriend decides she doesn't want to be with him. Like there are major social consequences to the to going off to war for him Mm -hmm. uh whereas frederick march no change in his station but he sure does start drinking a lot and he Mm -hmm. doesn't see the world the same so that's emotional for him and then of course harold russell it's very physical um there's some sharing of of these traits with all three but each one can be defined in those very clear states so between the three of them you have everything that war can do to a person and of course world war ii nobody would say that that was an unjust war to be fighting right um there was clear evil happening there um but that doesn't mean that there is no effect one of the things one of the wonderful things about best years of our lives is it understood that even just wars have uh, adverse consequences um traffic is about the drug war no yeah i know uh but each character i would say this uh let me see if you agree with me if there's an ensemble like a, a genuine ensemble cast be on the lookout for metaphors yeah. because when you have an ensemble cast you have the possibility to explore one thing from a number of different angles and so each person could potentially be a different approach yeah do, do you think that's uh yes i'm thinking of, i recently saw uh david wayne's new film they came together okay which very much talks about the idea that the friends of a man in the romantic comedy represent all the different ways you can think of relationships and he needs oh, yeah. to find the balance between them. Yep. <laughs> it very much literalizes that. Oh, I can't uh, wait to see it. That sounds, it sounds great. It's so great. They came together. I think it's going to be on VOD soon. Everyone should watch, watch it. It's so funny. Yeah. I think I'm really going to enjoy it. Uh, but yeah, so it's about the drug war, but each character is specific to themselves, but also, uh, a different attitude about it. Michael Douglas is the political side of it, obviously, but he's also as often politics tends to be, he's kind of oblivious to the day to day. Um, whereas Don Cheadle, he's a cop, he's on the front lines, but he also has an idealism to him. He thinks that this is very much worth doing all the time. Whereas Benicio del Toro, he's also on the front lines, but he understands the reality that it's never really going to stop. And then Catherine Zeta Jones is about the necessity, not of the drug war, but of how people get into the drug trade. She doesn't want to do it. She knows that her husband does it, um, kind of. But she winds up getting into it just as much as uh, just as much as anybody else because she needs to to make money. Um, and well, then so she needs to to maintain a lifestyle. Well, there's that too. Yeah. Um, and then Miguel Ferrer is. And that's the thing. Sorry to keep, but like, uh, I don't know if you've read. Um, the Bonfire of the Vanities. I never saw the movie. Uh, I did not, no. But the... Um, was that your favorite book for a long time? For a long time it was. I don't think it is anymore. But uh, there's a whole thing about how as you make more money, you start living a higher lifestyle and so you're still just scraping by and this oh, yeah. guy makes... And, and there's a, sequ- a section early in the book that, that details the lead character's 
finances and details exactly how he makes a million dollars a year and is living paycheck to paycheck. <laughs> oh, that sounds miserable. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and then Miguel Ferrer uh, plays a very important role. He winds up being the very cynical voice of reason, talking about just the, the futility of it. Um, his character is almost purely metaphorical, actually. Uh, and I think that might be, uh, we talked about um, Barton Fink being a, a Hollywood thing. Uh, Sunset Boulevard and the character of Norma Desmond is a twofold metaphor, a wonderful character, certainly, yeah. and very specific. I mean, you don't, you don't have a funeral for a chimp and people <laughs> accuse you of not being specific. Um, but she winds up being the allure and the glamour and the trap of Hollywood while also being a victim of it. Mm-hmm. And the, t- the fact that the two kind of go hand in hand. Um, the one I wanted to mention while we're on movies and art uh, is um, Shadow of the Vampire. Oh, yeah. Where um, I guess Willem Dafoe plays a vampire. This will, Oh, this brings us full circle. Back to Only Lovers Left Alive. All right. We I'm going to drop the rest of these. Okay. Um, he plays a vampire uh, who is a vampire, but he also represents, again, the hubris of the artist. Because uh, Malkovich, as Murnau, thinks that he by making the best art possible can actually capture and transmit to people truth and like reality and yeah. truth. And, uh, um, Defoe's vampire, what's his name? Uh, Count Orlock. Count Orlock. Oh, Matt, well, Max Shrek. Max Shrek yeah. Right. Uh, Max Shrek, um, uh, represents actual truth, which is bigger and meaner and more dangerous yeah. and could never be captured. And that's why, the best that you can do is the shadow of the vampire. Indeed. And indeed, uh, eventually in trying to capture this, the thing winds up capturing you, which is one of my favorite lines. This is hardly your picture any longer. Yeah. Oh, what a wonderful (laughs) film it is. Did Willem Dafoe and shadow of the vampire make my top 10, uh, supporting male performances? Uh, no, <laughs> but it became but I think it made the top fifteen. All right. Um you can find us at battleshippretension.com. That's where you uh oh shit. Um this episode was brought to you by Catalyst, a short film that follows several I'm sorry, several party goers as their lives become intertwined by a single event. The story is all told in one continuous shot. It was made for the My Road Real Contest. That's my R O D E Real Contest. And voting is open until June twenty third. So get on it. Yeah, the day after this episode goes live um so so check it out uh to vote just go to rodemic that's r-o-d-e-m-i-c dot com slash my road reel again m-y-r-o-d-e-r-e-e-l two e's yeah i'm not sure how many i said but there are only two <laughs> there's about five in there. Uh, and search for catalyst or this is the easy way to much do easier it. just click on the banner at battleship com. yes it's a very good it's a very good film very visually beautiful and uh, we want to try and support that filmmaker yes and again you can find a battleship com, which is where you can find this podcast and all the other podcasts in the bp fleet and uh as well as uh movie reviews galore this week uh, uh aaron uh reviewed hellion and um uh, who reviewed a summer's tale josh 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 reviewed a summer's tale uh i've got my uh la film fest write-ups uh up mm-hmm. there right now um which by the time you hear this should include a uh write-up of they came together um oh boy assume i assume i get on the ball and i have a busy weekend i mean we'll see uh, anyway um 
That's at BattleshipRetention.com. You can email us, David at BattleshipRetention.com or Tyler at BattleshipRetention.com. You can follow me on Twitter at The Pretension. Follow uh, Tyler on Twitter at More Lessons. That's the official. Uh, uh, that's the official Twitter of his his other podcast, More Than One Lesson, which is at MoreThanOneLesson dot com. We've already talked about some things going on there. Absolutely. Uh, my other podcast is the uh, TV podcast Hey Watch This with Paul and David, which I do with the King of TV, Paul Goebel. This week we are talking about the Game of Thrones finale and the premiere of Dominion on Sci-Fi, which has the stupidest slash greatest poster I've ever seen in my life. Have you seen this poster? I don't think I have. It's two angels fighting. Okay. On cloud, like on top of storm clouds. The one angel has a sword raised. Okay. The other angel is on his ground on his back, Steve Buscemi in Reservoir Dog style with two guns pointed up at the other angel. It's... Again, I want to tell like a whole back tattoo of this poster. It's the greatest <laughs> slash stupidest thing I've ever seen in my well, life. Well, I know what uh, what my uh, present's going to be for your uh, for your wedding. <laughs> a little surprise for for Natalie there. All right. Um, so uh, that said, uh, you can find that at battleshipretention.com as well. So thanks for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 